ladies and gentlemen, members and guests. Uh, my name is Karen Taylor and I'm the CEO of Invest Africa. I'm delighted to welcome you all to this, our first regional outlook for 2023. We have been running these for, for many years now and pre-COVID we did them in person, but during COVID we, we moved to a webinar format and they've proved so popular that we've decided to stay with this to get sort of maximum reach. Um, the West Africa um, Regional Outlook has been with us for more than a decade and Razia and I were just joking about how many we'd actually managed to do over the years together. Today's high level of participation from you as the, the attendees is, is really indicative of how much interest there is in the West Africa region. And as I'm sure you'll all know, this, this region will be striving for economic growth against a backdrop of lingering COVID effects from the pandemic, from the Russia-Ukraine conflict, and a number, a number of other issues that the panelists will, will bring to light. Uh, the challenge really for ECOWAS, which forms the financial backbone of this subregion, is to try and contain inflation rates. And I'm sure the speakers will all cover that, whilst encouraging growth. So all of this in a year with Nigeria, Africa's largest economy, holding its elections in, in less than three weeks, um, sorry, in a, in a month, and uh, no doubt having a big impact on the region. And so we have an excellent lineup of speakers, all of whom are members of Invest Africa and wonderful supporters of us, and I thank them for their time today. They're going to be uh, led by um, Bola Tenebu, partner from DLA Piper in Nigeria, uh, very capable hands today. And so just before I hand over to Bola, can I just uh, remind you, um, please keep your yourself as attendees on mute and off camera during the presentation. And do let us have your questions. Um, there will be time for short Q&A afterwards, so send them through to the chat. And finally, our event is being recorded and we will share that with members afterwards. So just to make you aware that that is the situation. And on that note, Bola, I'm gonna hand over to you and thank you very much for chairing our discussion today. Thank you, Karen. And hello everyone, and a very warm welcome to you all. I want to thank you for making the time to join this very important conversation. And it's my pleasure to be the moderator for this session on Invest Africa's 2023 Regional Outlook for West Africa. Now, today's conversation is not a rehash of the problems facing the world. It's about understanding the global, regional, and domestic cross-currents that we face. And it's a discussion around what we need to do differently for us to achieve the economic prosperity that we seek. And the facts are clear. Um, Africans will make up 25% of the world's population by 2050. We will become the largest workforce globally. Africa also hosts 25% of the natural global biodiversity, as well as 30% of the world's mineral, mineral resources. And of course, we have the potential to become the largest free trade area in the world with a 1.2 billion person market. Now, that being said, and against the global backdrop, um, growth in Sub-Saharan Africa is expected to slow down during the year with GB, GDP growth falling between by about 1% to 3.6%. Food and energy prices continue to rise um, and public debt and inflation are at levels that have not been seen in decades. So there are a number of questions that we have to ask ourselves. So to what extent are fortunes inextricably linked to the global slowdown? And what are the bold priorities that we must pursue this year to achieve that high growth, or that high quality growth that we need, um, not only to prosper, but also to be resilient. So these are the issues that we're going to be delving into today and which will provide us with a strong signpost of the business environment that we can expect in the region uh, this year. So it gives me very great pleasure to welcome three very highly regarded panelists today. So joining us, we have the Chief Economist and Head of Research, Africa and Middle East Standard Chartered Bank, Razia Khan, with over two decades of experience covering 
Emerging and Frontier Markets. She serves on the Presidential Economic Advisory Council of South Africa, as well as a host of other high profile appointments. She's a very well-known commentator in the region. Welcome, Razia. Thank you, Bola. We also have Aurelion Mali with us today. He is the Vice President Senior Credit Officer, Moody's Investor Service. He has been at the forefront of Moody's growing footprint in Africa and acts as the firm's expert in Africa as sovereign lead or backup analyst for almost all sovereign issuers and multilateral development banks rated by Moody's in Africa. So it's great to have you here as well, Aurelian. Hello. And joining us today as well is Zainab Alimashal. She's a senior analyst in Control Risk Global Risk Analysis Team, and she acts as an advisor to public and private sector organizations on political and operational risks across the African continent. Zainab has vast experience as a legal and risk professional, including her previous role at the Chief Investment Office at the Rwanda Development Board. So let's get straight into the discussion. And Razi, I'm going to start off with you. Now, according to the IMF in its last report on Sub-Saharan Africa, the recovery that we started to see um, at the tail end of 2021 has been abruptly interrupted and many countries are finding themselves pushed to the edge. And my question is this, how has the slowdown in global growth affected West Africa? And what is your general outlook for the region's economic trajectory over the medium to long term? Thank you, Bola. So you're absolutely right in that if we look at the vast amount of economic reports, the forecasts available, the focus has really been on the likely slowdown in global growth. We know that in 2021, even though many African economies were still impacted by the COVID crisis, not all had emerged from their COVID lockdowns. Even at that point, vaccination supply was slow to come through to the region. Nonetheless, the reopening of developed markets and the impetus that that gave to the pickup in global activity was a source of upside pressure on African growth. Many economies were able to benefit from being able to see this recovery in their exports, and this lifted growth prospects more generally. In 2022, we were hit by the dual shock. It became very evident that higher inflation in developed markets was not something that was necessarily transitory. It looked as though it was there to stay. It looked as though we were seeing inflation rates that developed markets hadn't seen for around 40 years, necessitating a very forceful policy response. There was also the impact of Russia, Ukraine, pressure on fertilizer prices, pressure on agricultural inputs, more exchange rate volatility, higher energy prices, higher food prices. And we know that these were conditions that had a significant amount of downside risk for many African economies and the West African region was certainly not spared. But as I speak to you today in 2023, there is a sense that a shift is now underway. Yes, it's true that everyone is still on guard for the likelihood of a global slowdown. The World Bank and others talk about the fact that we may not be seeing the same per capita income rises across multiple regions that we had seen pre-COVID, that these are going to be difficult times, that even though markets have started to price in the likelihood of Fed easing later in the year, we're not out of the woods. We are going to be seeing a persistent tightening of global financial conditions. Everyone is just going to have to get used to that. And in the West Africa region, we know that this has been especially important because of some of the assumptions that underscored activity in the past. The ease of being able to tap international capital markets for the easy refinancing of debt obligations. We've seen very divergent outcomes. In Nigeria, the finance minister saying only today, no plans for new euro bond issuance in 2023. Market conditions still don't necessarily allow for it. Nigeria would prefer to see much lower rates before it borrowed international, it borrows internationally. In Ghana, of course, we've had a much more significant outcome already with Ghana choosing not to continue to service its external debt. Ghana now seeking a debt restructuring under the common framework and sitting down with creditors to try to negotiate its way through this very difficult period. 
Now, there is an expectation, Nigeria elections, we've titled our report, our outlook report for this year, this time is different. The expectation that we are going to be seeing more deeper reforms underscoring a likely growth recovery. But we can't get away from the fact that the global backdrop remains very difficult and the challenges for the region will persist. No doubt we'll be talking about this in a great deal more detail. Thank you very much, Razia. Zainab, Razia has touched on um, major global developments that have shaped our outlook, commodity prices, tightening financial conditions. What would you say are the critical growth factors that we expect will spur West Africa's economic growth in 2023? And what are the obstacles that are in our way? Thank you very much, Paula. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, like you said, and like, like Razia said, you know, in 2022, we saw, you know, a lot of West African countries in the region struggle with, you know, to respond to sustained economic shocks from the COVID pandemic and the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Um, in 2023, we're likely to see African governments essentially trying to emerge from this by focusing on two areas. So one would be economic recovery and resilience, and Razia touched on that, which countries like Ghana looking to restructure their debt and trying to get out of the, you know, the high levels of public debt situations that they've had um, over the last two to three years. Um, we're also likely to see West African governments looking to reposition themselves for global relevance within the new economic world order that appears to have emerged after, you know, the Russia-Ukraine conflict and the COVID pandemic. So what's likely to happen? Um, one, we are likely to see, and we're already seeing the development of regional you know, supply chain. So we're seeing the Nigeria-Morocco gas pipeline, um, significant investments by the Nigerian government in partnerships across the region um, with 14 other West African countries to build a pipeline going into Europe um, as a result of increased demand, you know, for alternative gas supplies from Russia as a result of the conflict. We're also seeing partnerships, you know, around the Trans-Saharan gas pipeline between Niger, Nigeria, and Algeria. We're likely to see more of these types of regional partnerships going into 2023. We're also likely to see improvements in domestic value chains. So as a result of the exposures, you know, that West African countries had um, during COVID, especially, um, you know, with respect to supply chain disruptions, it exposed a lot of import reliance that West African countries had. Um, you had countries like Ghana, for example, relying on Russia and Ukraine for significant, you know, imports of its steel, its, you know, iron ore products, its wheat, its grains. You had Nigeria's, you know, import bills for refined petroleum going up to about $15 billion annually. Um, and so we're likely to see West African countries going into 2023, looking for ways to, you know, develop their domestic value chains, looking for ways to import substitution, for example, of wheat with cassava flour in places like Nigeria. Um, we're also likely to see more protectionist policies on commodities. So we're seeing an emerging um, quote and unquote West Africa cocoa cartel. Um, you're seeing countries like Ghana, you know, taking a stand to say we will no longer, you know, be exporting our raw cocoa. We want you to come into our countries to produce. You're seeing them making moves with Cote d'Ivoire, trying to bring in Nigeria and a non-West African country, but a regional partner, Cameroon. Um, between them, they control about 70% of the global cocoa production market. You're seeing them make moves to try and sort of protect um, the movement of those raw materials out and sort of, you know, keep the profits within the region and improve, you know, the economy. So we're, we're likely to see more and more of these types of protectionist policies on commodities, on natural resources going into 2023. Um, now, in terms of what obstacles, there's several obstacles that West African countries will face. Um, one, as Razia, you know, touched on, sovereign financing constraints continue to be a challenge. A lot of Afri West African countries, apart from Ghana and Nigeria, have faced high levels of public debt, um, you know, with fewer revenue sources. So a lot of them like Ghana have been close to international capital markets. They're finding it more and more difficult to borrow funds. Um, they're finding it more and more difficult to secure you know, domestic credits. You have Nigeria you know, being leveraged to its own central bank by over 22 trillion Naira. Um, you, you're seeing dwindling domestic reserves um, from you know, Forex-based revenue um, commodities like oil and gas. Um, Nigeria has that challenge also. You're also seeing struggles with, you know, 
securing revenues from local tax debt. That will likely be an obstacle going into 2023 for these countries' lofty goals. You're also seeing issues with political stability across the region. So we've seen a lot of citizen frustrations um, over you know, persistent security issues, poor governance, cost of living challenges. We've seen protests, unprecedented protests in Ghana in 2022, almost three a month. Um, we saw protests in relatively stable countries like Sierra Leone, you know, and, you know, these are likely to continue on going into 2023 as citizens continue to express their frustrations. And these will likely continue to instigate the military transitions and the interventions that we've seen, you know, in countries like Mali, Burkina and Guinea. Um, and also we're likely to see, you know, changes to the democratic transition. So we have the Nigeria elections happening next month, um, but we also saw, you know, a lot of political changes in Senegal last year during their parliamentary elections. We're likely to see that in elections coming up in Sierra Leone this year and also Liberia. Um, so these are also going to present obstacles, you know, to the lofty goals and plans that most West African countries have. In addition to that, security threats continue to affect, you know, the ease of doing business across the region. We're seeing southward shifts of, you know, terrorist threats from the Sahel region, you know, Mali, Burkina into coastal West Africa, Nigeria, Togo, Benin. These will continue to affect investments into the into the region. And finally, regional cohesion is also going to be a problem. So even though we have a lot of policies in place, a lot of lofty goals like the AFC, FTA, there's still issues around unified payments, there are issues around you know, currency, how to move your goods you know, across the region, free movement of goods and services easily, um, you know, the, the currency controls across the countries and also restrictive you know, regulations and regulators that stifle the movement of goods and services. So combined, these are obstacles that we will likely continue to see, you know, sort of um, frustrate the efforts that most um, governments are trying to make going into 2023 um, to improve their economies. Um, and I'll just hand over back to you, Paula. Thank you very much. Um, Aurelian, turning to you, um, Zainab talked about um, one of the obstacles being the potential debt crisis. Um, public debt is a challenge and regional public debt in sub-Saharan Africa has increased about 60% of GDP now. So how have countries like Ghana ended up with their current debt situation? And how can countries within the region address the potential debt crisis and develop revenue streams to decrease their current exposure to, to debt um, and external shocks? Thank you, Bola. Um, Ghana is in default. Um, they uh, announced the restructuring of their domestic debt uh, and uh, they extended for the first third time now uh, participation to uh, domestic bondholder. And they announced very recently at the end of last year that they are, not, they are going to stop paying uh, some external debt, which includes all the uh, Euro bonds. So at Moody's, we have a, a rating of CA, which is uh, uh, heavy losses for, for bondholders, indicates uh, that um, uh, the country um, is likely to be in default. Um, you, you, the, the situation of, of Ghana has been a, a long one. You need to go back to maybe 15 years ago to understand because it's valid for many countries in the region. It was the, the first country with Gabon to issue Eurobond on the international market. And many African countries with their infrastructure needs because they had uh, uh, generally lack of savings and not very uh, developed domestic market uh, went to issue Eurobond. And, and Ghana especially uh, managed to issue a lot of uh, Eurobonds through the years uh, to, to uh, you know, uh, promote the, the, the economy, uh, really uh, support some of the, the, the plans, uh, the development plans of, of, of the authorities and so on. So that situation was valid for many uh, countries and we witnessed many issuance of euro bonds throughout uh, the last decade. But something has really changed. Uh, I would say it's the, the reappraisal of, of credit conditions with the increase of uh, the Fed's uh, international rates. And of course, now uh, uh, clearly the financing conditions that were prevalent for a decade uh, are no longer uh, available. And so 
many times we were asked um, uh, these decisions of, of euro bonds by, by frontier market countries in, in Africa. And we said the, the interest rates were very low, but uh, decisions were not tested, tested in a sense that uh, the, the country needs to be, or the, the, the borrower, the issuer needs to be in a situation if the market is closed to be able to, to uh, uh, honor the maturity when it's due. And uh, Ghana found itself in a situation where servicing the debt uh, through several shocks and very uh, large deficit over the years, uh, the, the, the interest payment uh, were uh, above half of the revenue of the government. So it was in a situation where debt dynamics were unsustainable. Um, from the countries that issued debt uh, during the, the, the past, uh, past decade, uh, Tanzania has defaulted, Ethiopia has defaulted as well. Uh, and the question for uh, Ghana now is uh, the loan fee negotiation with the creditors uh, that are going to start uh, based on historical uh, records. Uh, it takes years to deal with uh, this issue. In the case of Ghana, probably it will be uh, a bit facilitated by the fact that most of the external debt is uh, due to bondholders and there is less uh, diversity of, of creditors. But uh, what is clear is that uh, this situation, um, uh, many other countries, in fact, in the region, are facing redemptions in the coming uh, years. And therefore, uh, the options that they will have to be able to repay is very important. Uh, uh, financing conditions will be difficult with all the, the, the shocks that occurred on uh, on the, the balance sheet of government due to COVID, uh, the, even last year, uh, the energy and, and food price shock, uh, the, uh, uh, the efforts made to support the most vulnerable household really continue to, to, to maintain large deficits and therefore large borrowing requirements for government. So as long as this situation uh, is going to persist and is going to persist, financing need will be very difficult for all the issuers in the region. And depending on also the, the resolution and what the terms are going to be applied uh, through the common framework, there will be uh, uh, important informations for uh, many of the other issuers uh, on the continent and especially in, uh, in West Africa. Okay. Thank you very much, um, Aurelion. Uh, Zain, I'm going to go back to you. Um, and what is clear from what everyone has said so far is that we do need to develop our revenue streams. So when you consult your, your crystal ball, what sectors and markets in West Africa offer the strongest investment potential? Thanks, Paula. So um, I think, first off, it's, it, it's the primary opportunities still remain, uh, you know, in the extractive sector, and the primary opportunities still remain in, you know, oil and gas for the West Africa region. Extractives continue to, you know, present the strongest investment potential, you know, due to sustained global demand and, you know, foreign currency-based revenue opportunities it presents, you know, to cash-strapped governments. Um, you know, countries like Nigeria, Cote d'Ivoire, Senegal are doubling down on investments in the oil and gas sector. Um, they're ramping up exploration and production activities across the country. We've seen in Nigeria, um, you know, the the last month, we saw a $3 billion investment in the Komani oil fields in the northeastern parts of the country. We're seeing a lot of investment in, you know, in the in the oil and gas, you know, value chain across the country um, and into the region, as I mentioned, um, with the gas pipelines. But outside of oil and gas, we're also seeing, you know, several other sectors present unique opportunities to investors, mainly due to, you know, significant su supply gaps um, within these sectors. So one would be agriculture. You know, we have um, a region with a very large population, over 400 million, you know, West Africans, about 50% of them are based in Nigeria. You know, there's significant, you know, portions of agricultural lands that have been uncultivated across the region. Um, and in spite of that, there are a lot of food security challenges, you know, due to weak infrastructure, uh, you know, weak agricultural supply and value chains and local production capacity is quite limited, you know, and quite low. And so agriculture presents, you know, unique opportunities 
opportunity for commercial scale farmers and those who are looking to come into the region um, to support or improve food security. Um, a second sector that I think um, presents a lot of opportunities would be the renewable energy sector. Um, again, you have high levels of energy poverty across sub-Saharan Africa. You know, some statistics say about 57% of the region that's about 1.7 billion people, 57% of that lack access to electricity, you know, and could benefit, you know, from cheaper, cleaner sources of, of, of energy um, instead of investing in hydropower, you know, and other forms of really expensive infrastructure. Renewables presents, you know, more decentralized um, opportunities for investors to come in to various regions, uh, various parts of the regions to support, you know, that need. Um, the third sector, I would say, would be technology. Um, particularly financial technology. Um, again, because of the you know, low levels of financial inclusion across the region, um, it continues to present huge market opportunities, especially for fintech investors. And we've seen quite a number of unicorns um, emerge, you know, the paystacks, the flutter waves um, emerge from Nigeria. And we're likely to see more emerge across West Africa in the coming, you know, in the coming year or two. Um, so those three sectors, I think, outside of oil and gas present the most opportunities, um, I would say, to investors um, going into 2023. Thank you very much. Um, and Razi, just changing track a bit, um, with over a billion inhabitants um, and a very young population, the continent has wealth that needs to be harnessed and experts are saying that the investment in human capital is critical to our growth. Now, how do we explore um, Africans' human resources as a strategic opportunity uh, to create inclusive growth and development? Thank you, Bola. In answering that, I'd like to touch on the themes raised by the other two speakers. Aurelian spoke about the tightening of global financial conditions. One of the key issues, one of the key challenges that African economies is, are going to face is the old assumptions about how easy it is to raise capital externally may no longer hold. Different countries are going to have to try harder looking at all of the resources available to them. And so a very key question to answer your question around how to drive growth is what's going to be available to sustain that. Zainab also spoke at length about some of the sectors that she saw contributing to this growth. Now, we have known for a long time that Africa does have this human capital potential. If we talk about the investment case for African economies more broadly, the young demographic of the region, the fact that you do see productivity gains, people migrating from rural areas and taking on more urban economic functions in itself drives a productivity gain that helps to contribute to growth. But we also need to take a step back and say this demographic advantage, this human capital potential has been in place for a while. What has stopped different African economies from fully realizing the full benefit of that human capital potential? When we look at great growth studies and look at the difference between the regions of the world that have managed economic transformation and perhaps the more cyclical challenges that we've seen in sub-Saharan Africa, there's one point that stands out very clearly. First of all, those economies that manage to achieve transformation, that manage to achieve growth rates of around 7%, this gets spoken about a lot. If an economy can sustain 7% growth, it's doubling in size every decade. But those are the kind of economies that have seen the transformation. While the human capital underpinning of that is important, no question about it, invest in that education, invest in a reform environment that can see the benefits of doing something with that human capital. The one thing that distinguishes the countries that achieved the growth, that achieved the structural transformation, is that they were able to sustain growth over long periods of time. It's not just 7% growth for a couple of years, it's 7% for perhaps even decades. They did this by rising levels of savings, rising levels of investment. So when we're looking at Africa, whether we're considering the human capital issue or any of the other growth challenges, a key question is what kind of focus and cyclicality, what kind of cyclical influences detract from this achievement of sustained growth for a long period of time? We know to some extent what the answer is. 
We haven't seen deep enough reforms. Growth is very commodity dependent. If commodity prices are doing well, if the rest of the world is growing, some economies do well for that part of the, the time that they benefit from favorable external conditions. What we should be seeking for the proper underpinnings of a transformative growth experience in the region is sustained growth. And I think we need to consider all of the policy environment in that light. Does it lend itself to a quick cyclical boost? Are investors interested just in the short term? Or are we really seeing evidence of that structural transformation? And to answer your question, Bola, the human capital issue is going to be a key part of it. How much are governments really investing in education? Are we really seeing improved outcomes? Are there jobs markets that markets that can absorb the number of graduates when they start to look for jobs. These are the structural underpinnings of growth that deserve a great deal more attention in the region. Thank you very much, uh, Razia. And Aurelion, I'd like to ask you, now, most Africans see the potential of the African Continental Free Trade Area Agreement as a key driver of growth in the region with a single African market of over a billion consumers um, with a total GDP of over three trillion US dollars. Now, to what extent do you think that the African trade agreement will actually boost intra-regional trade? Um, I think first, it's a, it's a positive step because it removes some soft, uh, I would say, barriers to trade. Uh, and so it should be uh, really uh, praised as a, a first step towards uh, improving the, the trade volume. But I think uh, to, to give a bit more detail to, to the audience, it removes, for example, custom duties on any manufactured product in Africa. So it gives, uh, in theory, an incentive for a long-term investor to build the, the, the plant, uh, the manufacturing plant inside Africa and, and create jobs and wealth and so on. But uh, it, it presupposes that you have everything already available to really uh, develop manufacturing. And therefore, uh, only a few countries at the moment will benefit from, from this uh, agreement, the ones that have a, probably a, already a light or a manufacturing sector or strong like South Africa, a bit Egypt and, 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 and few others. But if you, if you now uh, take uh, a step back and you look at uh, the very uh, weak uh, regional, intra-regional trade, even in West Africa and, and throughout the continent, you, you realize that there has been many uh, uh, trade zones created. Uh, you have the ECOWAS, the WAMU, the CEMAG, the uh, SADEC and so on, uh, and COMESA, and, and none have really, uh, uh, boosted uh, intra-regional trade because you have barriers that are uh, physical barriers like infrastructure. Uh, if you want to develop a manufacturing sector, you need energy, you need uh, human capital, uh, 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 like uh, uh, Asia uh, explained, and uh, the lack of, of logistics, transport, uh, getaway to evacuate your production is, is uh, really a deterrent uh, for, for this investment and, and to, the, to the trade between countries. Uh, in in uh, West Africa, for example, one very big project that I've heard for the last uh, 20 years since I started is the, uh, is the corridor between Abidjan and, and Lagos, the highway that should link Abidjan, Accra, Lomé, Cotonou and Lagos. Uh, I'm sure that this, uh, probably this uh, infrastructure will do more to develop intra-regional trade in the, in the region than uh, the trade agreement, uh, at least over the short term, medium term. Thank you very much. Um, and, and staying on with you, um, I'd like us to explore the effect of insecurity in the region on long-term investment. So what's been done to reverse the trends of rising insecurity, particularly those that are heightened by proxy wars in the sub-region? I mean, this is, uh, you know, the, 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 the situation in the Sahel for, for West Africa, I mean, is this, the Sahel is a very large band. It goes from Senegal to Ethiopia. And so you have many countries concerned. 
and very hot, uh, uh, difficult uh, areas in Mali, Burkina, Niger, in, in the north of Nigeria. And I think if you take a step back and you look what uh, they have in common, often, and this is true for many African countries, uh, the further you are from the capital city, the less developed and, and uh, the less availability of public service, the government is not, is not present as, as it should. And so after the, so many conflicts that were internal uh, really morphed into violent extremism, especially after the, the, the collapse of um, uh, the Libyan regime, the regime in Libya. Uh, and, and today it's very difficult, as long as you don't have a plan to make sure that these regions uh, outside of the cities are really uh, taken care with uh, security, with uh, uh, public services, uh, it will be still a fertile ground for recruits among the, the youth from these uh, violent groups. And therefore, uh, you know, even uh, uh, France military machine uh, with uh, uh, European support, American support, the, the size of the, the land is too big and, and there are too many uh, um, I would say failure and, and uh, 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 vacuum, uh, I would say, that it's very difficult to see how it's going to be dealt with very quickly. We are talking about millions of displaced people, uh, thousands of people that have been killed, and you get also um, uh, a growing income inequality and development between these regions and the rest of their countries. Uh, so um, we are not worried at Moody's for the extractive industries that have a, a, a history of being resilient to uh, some of political uh, difficulties, but it's going to, to be affecting probably more countries that will have to raise as well their uh, security spending, like Cote d'Ivoire did after Grand Bassin in 2016. But uh, um, many countries will have to, to really look at the development potential of, 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 of the more harmonious development of, of, of their countries. Thank you. Um, Zainab, now Nigeria is the biggest economy in Africa and insecurity is certainly one, going to be one of the key challenges of a new Nigerian government. Um, so can we look forward to Nigeria having a seamless political transition and can we foresee a change to a government that will give credibility to policies as well as investments? Hmm. Well, thanks, Paula. Um, I think election years in Nigeria tend to be quite disruptive, um, you know, due to the high levels of political uncertainty that we tend to see ahead of during and immediately after elections. Um, and 2023 is not likely to be that much different from what we've seen in previous years. Um, I think. On, on our end, we, we envisage probably three possible outcomes, you know, to the elections holding next month. Um, you know, it's, it's either a scenario where we have, you know, most likely scenario is that, you know, the ruling party retains federal power. Um, and that's likely because, you know, we've seen a very well organized, you know, um, ruling party going into the um, campaigns for the elections. Um, we've seen them retain significant control of the number of states that they've had. They currently control about 21 states in the country. Um, they appear to have, you know, retained that control um, compared to a less organized, deeply divided opposition party. Um, to put into context, three of the four frontrunner candidates that we've seen um, going into the elections next month this time last year were members of the PDP. Um, today we have just one Antiqua Bubakar. Um, we have Pete Obi, who's the third force candidate who has, you know, shifted to the Labour Party with his own supporters. We have Rabi Musa Kwakonsu, who has also left with his own supporters. That has made the opposition significantly weaker. And, you know, of those who are left, we also have about five of the 14 state governors that are left, you know, indicating that they would not be supporting, you know, the main opposition um, candidates, presidential candidates. Candidate. So for us, the likely scenario is that the ruling party, you know, as a result of that weakened opposition is likely, you know, to secure victory next month. But it is also possible that we seek a credible alternative, which is potential shifts in voting patterns. 
um, that could also reduce the margins of the ruling party. So it's possible that we see, you know, a lot of voter demographics who are usually apathetic um, to elections. So urban youth voters, for example, who INEX says, you know, have constituted about 70% of new um, voter registrations this year. Um, we're, we're also likely to see, you know, for the first time in a long time, Christian faith-based voters, you know, taking a stand during the elections next month. Um, whether or not these, you know, voters, these new demographics will be able to constitute, you know, a critical mass, you know, to secure the minimal votes that you require, um, which is 25% in 23 states at least. Um, it, it's a wait and see at this point in time, but it is possible, you know, that the shifts in voting patterns could lead to runoff next month. Um, the outlier, which is the third um, scenario we envisage will happen, is the Electoral Commission not being able to successfully conduct elections. And this has become a possibility, although a very extreme one, because of the targeted attacks that we're seeing against the Electoral Commission across the country. There are a lot of security challenges um, with their assets being attacked, their personnel being attacked, their locations being attacked. Um, there's also internally displaced people in the northwestern part of the country, in the northeastern part of the country, that will probably find it very challenging, you know, participating in next month's elections. The communities that have been affected, you know, cut off by floods, you know, and other logistical challenges that might also have challenges with, you know, participating um, in next month's elections. And so it is possible that we see postponements in some parts of the country, but ne not necessarily the whole um, country, which is why that's an outlier. Now, of all three outcomes, we do expect that a political transition will happen on the 29th of May this year. So in terms of whether or not there will be a transition, the answer is yes. Seamless, that's wait and see at this point in time. Um, but then even in, in terms of that, all three outcomes still present very challenging you know, scenarios for the country. We're looking at, you know, one for businesses, political stability risk. We're already seeing a slowdown in decision-making just yesterday, the Senate president announced that, you know, the Senate, the National Assembly will be shutting down at the end of this week for lawmakers to focus on electoral campaigns. And this is a National Assembly that currently has the finance bill, which is supposed to tell us how we fund, you know, the 2023 budget still pending. This is the same Senate that has, you know, the Ways and Means advances still pending, you know, approval for its securitization, you know, in front of it. And, you know, essentially they're going to close shop for the next possibly two months. By the time they're back, it's going to be about six weeks, you know, to the end of the government. So we could effectively see a government kicking the can down the road with respect to how we generate revenues to fund our budgets and expenditure going into the next one year. Um, we're also likely to see politically motivated unrest, depending on who wins the elections next month. Um, you know, we're also likely to see legal challenges to electoral outcomes, which tends to happen every election cycle, ends up with the Supreme Court, but there's also a period of uncertainty around what could happen. Um, we're also then likely to see, you know, after the transition, you know, slow down generally because of the changes to government stakeholders. So you're going to see slowdown in approvals of, you know, licenses and approval of, you know, statutory approvals, simply because they're waiting for a new minister to come in, you know, the new governor has to inaugurate his cabinet, you know, and whatnot. So businesses will likely see a lot of challenges around political stability. Um, the second would be sovereign risk, which we've talked about in detail, you know, already, but, you know, the, the, the budget deficit is a significant problem. About 50% of the budget is currently lacking revenue to fund it. Will the new government be able to deal with that? It's wait and see. Um, there's a lot of, you know, domestic um, debt challenges. The CBN loans are still there. We're looking at, you know, according to the debt management office, close to 77 trillion, which is, you know, about $170 billion. Um, is what the new government will inherit. Um, so there's a lot of debt that the new government is going to um, receive from day one. And there are a lot of tough decisions that would have to be made from day one. And these will form a lot of distractions for the new government, you know, as they come in at the end of May. Um, and then this then trickles into regulatory risks for businesses, because at the end of the day, you're going to have a new government that is essentially searching for revenue to be able to fund its government. Um, what we're seeing is a likely ramp up of, you know, 
uh, a search for internally generated revenue, so more taxes, more sanctions um, towards businesses that governments might think you know would be lucrative enough to be able to shore up revenues while they sort out their other sovereign you know debt challenges. Um, so I think those 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 in a nutshell are the three top risks that I think businesses would would be likely to see you know going into going into you know the post election you know phase um, in Q two three four of of, of twenty twenty three. Thank you very much um, for, for that detailed insight. So Razia, now that Zainab has provided us with um, some context, what post-election reforms can we now look forward to in Nigeria? What does the new government need to focus on so that we can truly harness those economic opportunities that have been presented? Thank you, Bola. And I was raising my hand there because I was saying, can I please provide a somewhat more upbeat assessment of what we're likely to see in Nigeria? First of all, some of the obvious issues that have held back growth and reserves accumulation in the recent past. We know that 2022 was an incredibly difficult year for Nigeria, not just because of the deferment of this decision on what to do with the fuel subsidy, but the big hope for Nigeria 2023 has to be the growing consensus around the fact that the subsidy has to go. This has been such a long time drag on Nigeria's macroeconomy, a very regressive policy with very little economic benefit that has prevented faster accumulation of foreign exchange reserves, we know that the 2023 budget, whatever format we're going to be seeing, only makes allowances for the subsidy to be covered for the first half of the year. With Nigeria's rising domestic refining capacity, this time there really is a sense that these tough decisions will be taken and that the subsidy will have to go. The fact that we're already starting to see evidence of significant fuel shortages now and then in different parts of the country may even create a greater consensus around the idea that the subsidy has outlived its usefulness and it's time to look at doing things differently. The most encouraging thing that we see facing Nigeria right now, it's not just the fact that we're already in the midst of some recovery in oil production. We know that production had been deliberately shut in for some of last year, because of the insecurity situation, now with greater reassurances, with greater reliability in terms of being able to monitor what happens along pipelines, we are seeing tentative signs of that improvement in oil output. Should that continue, then in year-on-year -year terms, if nothing else, we've already got a boost to Nigerian growth. But the unspoken part of what happened in Nigeria last year is the fact that even as we saw this sharp contraction in oil sector growth, the non-oil sector, despite all of the very many hurdles, the challenges of an FX situation that remained very difficult, the other constraints, rising inflation, the non-oil sector showed good momentum following the COVID crisis. And the expectation is that that can continue. The Nigerian authorities will talk very confidently about the fact that both non-oil and oil revenue are expected to improve in 2023, and there may well be substance to this. While businesses may complain loudly about the tax burden that they face, the fact is that Nigeria's revenue mobilization lags well behind many different peers. There is plenty of scope to raise more revenue in Nigeria without necessarily harming the business environment. But most important, some of the self-inflicted challenges to growth, some of these self-inflicted constraints on growth, foreign exchange policy being a very key one, not difficult to fix with rising oil production, with better prospects for reserves accumulation, the expectation that this can go some way towards resolving those foreign exchange bottlenecks, it may well create a more positive, a more upbeat business environment in Nigeria. So I'd just like to play devil's advocate here and say, actually, maybe the outlook for 2023 is a little bit better than we assume. Yes, there is key political risk with the holding of elections, but perhaps given the situation, there will also be the impetus for much faster tackling of reform, and we won't see a long drawn out process where nothing happens. Thank you very much indeed. And with that, we come to the end of this part of our session, and we'll go ahead to take some questions from the audience. And I see that there are a couple of questions that, that we have in the Q&A box. 
So I'll start off with the first one. Um, and the first question is, how would the panel suggest that West African states escape so-called debt distress while still funding key domestic priorities, um, such as energy access and development? Um, who would like to take that? Uh, I, I will uh, I will start. Um, I think the, the you know we don't give advice because we are uh, Moody's is a credit rating agency. So, but uh, this, there is no fatality. You have countries that have managed to keep control of their public finances. Um, for example, we uh, we have a positive outlook on Cote d'Ivoire that has uh, during the previous years issued uh, a number of euro bonds to in fact uh, do asset man uh, asset liability management exercise to repay the, the coming maturities and now they face a very benign uh, debt service in terms of, of, of maturity of external debt and uh, they are focusing uh, their effort on, on raising uh, uh, revenues uh, of course uh, the growth uh, being uh, very fast um, so the one element that we really uh, studied is the, the capacity to generate extra revenue to, to be able to uh, prevent the deficit to get uh, increasingly larger, leading to debt unsustainability. And it's true that the continent has suffered a lot of shocks uh, with the COVID and the, the, gov the, the countries were not as strong as the advanced economy to, to, to support their economies. Uh, and, and also the most vulnerable were hurt uh, quite uh, significantly during this period where, you know, you had restriction on, on movement, but also with the, the food and energy prices um, uh, uh, witnessed last year, increase with witnessed last year. And it's clear that some countries were able to uh, support uh, uh, some uh, basic items, uh, but at the cost of larger deficits. Uh, and so you, you, you see uh, the, the, the difficulty being uh, countries with not a lot of, uh, uh, I would say, fiscal space to face uh, so large uh, uh, shocks, uh, consecutive shocks. And there are still a lot of uncertainty. Uh, the infrastructure remains uh, a big issue uh, for development. And uh, but 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 keeping control on the on the public finances is is absolutely important to be able to borrow in good conditions or favorable rates. Maybe if I can come in on that one. So what we've seen in the recent past with the adoption of common framework restructuring processes is this emphasis on the debt carrying capacity of different economies. And the question is, why was it that everyone lost sight some, at some point down the road of the actual debt carrying capacity of the economy? When capital is plentifully available, when it's easily available, easily tapped, maybe something goes wrong with the way risks are assessed, maybe something is going wrong with the pricing. We are fundamentally in a world where we've seen a repricing of that cost of capital. Whatever happens with inflation, even given expectations of more policy easing for major central banks, we're not that yet there in Europe. There could still be more Fed tightening to come before we actually get to the point where everyone focuses on easing. The fact is the borrowing countries are going to have to realize that we are are in an economic environment that is fundamentally different, where interest rates have fundamentally reset at a higher level. And I think this will force that much more of a focus on the actual underlying debt carrying capacity of different economies. So there'll have to be a closer look at how to mobilize domestic revenue, how to mobilize domestic financing, as well as external financing, on all those important reforms that have probably slipped by the wayside in recent years are likely to be key areas of focus going forward because suddenly there's the realization that growth is going to be a lot more difficult to come by, that the debt-fueled growth of the past, of the last decade or so, last decade and a half, is simply not going to be possible. This is a time for countries to implement the reforms that are needed to drive real underlying growth and real revenue momentum and real underlying reforms as well. Thank you very much. Um, Zainab, I'm going to direct the next question to you. 
It says, should we expect a major devaluation in Nigeria after the elections? I have to unmute. Um, that's really a somewhat difficult question to answer at this point in time, um, mainly because um, we still have to see the new government come in and you know, determine what their policy direction will be. Um, it's important to note that this is the first time in eight years that we're gonna have an entirely new government at federal level. And so even if we have the same party come in, it will be a different leader likely coming in with their own you know, policies. Um, the devaluation decision is a, a very, very broad, you know, economic decision with far reaching consequences. Um, and so it would, I would have to call wait and see on that at this point in time. Um, I do know there's still, you know, the central bank governor is still as of yesterday, very much in, in office, um, but I'm not sure that it's a decision that can be taken without, you know, uh, executive approval. And that's likely to be something that we'll have to wait to see happen, you know, after May 29th. Any other? Yes, please go ahead. What's happening in markets, SMIS auctions, the expectation amongst companies that they've got to bid at around 500 to get their demand for foreign exchange filled. I think we're already seeing signs of that depreciation taking place. The question is really around the NAFEX fixing on the investor and exporter window. And clearly this will have to be sequenced in line with the fuel subsidy reforms. Whilst any foreign exchange reforms takes away from the threat of inflation in Nigeria. So much has been priced unnecessarily at the parallel market rate. For fuel prices, the official rate is still important. So the suggestion would be a careful sequencing of reforms, bid exchange rate depreciation, exchange rate adjustment to ensure a better functioning market, by all means, this is more likely than not. I, I probably just to, just to add on um, very briefly, um, I think from from the political angle, I think part of the challenges with we've seen governments um, struggle with when taking these decisions are if, if the, the political repercussions that tend to come with them. So, for example, the subsidy removal, it's something that was in the Petroleum Industry Act years ago, it should have been removed. But the fear of, you know, the reprisal from from the public, the unrest that could come from it sort of forced it to kick the can down the road to the new government. Very ideal for, you know, the exchange rates to be, you know, removed from its artificial position, but the repercussions, I guess, will continue to keep, you know, the current government and the incoming government in check as to what the repercussions are. I just wanted to point out what, what why that angle also tends to come in when it comes to decision-making very clear decisions that could be made from a foreign perspective, but tend not to be made, you know, from, from, from the Nigerian government level. Thank you very much. And we're going to take the very last question. I'll direct this to Aurelion, if you can answer it in less than a minute. Which countries have the greatest amortizations in 2023? Do you think that some sovereigns currently rated in the B categories can face significant refinancing risks considering the current market conditions? You know, I think we, we think that uh, our ratings reflect uh, the risks that we see in terms of uh, uh, the credit risk, so the, the capacity and the willingness of a country to, to pay its debt. So uh, what is certain is market conditions will uh, affect uh, definitely uh, the, 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 the credit risk uh, for, for a frontier market in, in Africa. Uh, we, um, we have, um, uh, as I said at the beginning, a wave of, of issuance throughout the continent that are going to mature in the, the next few years. And most of the countries have already uh, quite significant um, current account deficit. And so if you couple that with the potential for capital outflows, even the, the rates that are offered elsewhere, um, you, you, you could see uh, some uh, uh, countries having their um, external vulnerability deteriorating quite fast and, and, and face liquidity issue, which uh, of course 
uh, trump uh, the sustainability of the or the, the capacity uh, to pay. Uh, but so this is why we we try to monitor that very closely. There are many countries that have that face redemptions um, over the next few years, and it's not just 2023 that matters. Uh, they need to to design, or they will probably try to design uh, a strategies to to be able to uh, to pay the debt if they cannot um, uh, roll over the, the 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 bonds. Thank you very much, and that's all the time we have for questions today. I must say a special thank you to our fantastic guest panelists, Razia, Zainab, and Aurelion, for a very insightful conversation. Thank you for making our discussion a very rewarding one with great takeaways. Um, so it looks like it's going to be a year underpinned with uncertainty, but we do have the insights now um, that indicate the different direction that we need to take to convert this to a better year. And we, and that's the government, public sector, private sector, development sector, we must now all take action in applying these diverse solutions to this very promising landscape um, I want to thank Invest Africa for um, holding this uh, session, and I want to thank our audience, most especially, not only for joining us, but for also participating in the discussion. Uh, we do hope your perspectives have been widened by this meeting, and I'll now hand over to Karen. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Bola. I really don't have much to add to that um, excellent summing up that you provided. Wonderful insights from our really wonderful panelists. And most importantly, thank you, Bola, for chairing us today. I think it was expertly done. And I know that actually we could spend another hour chatting about West Africa. So perhaps what we'll do is come back to you after the Nigerian election with an update and uh, take it from there. So thank you very much to everybody and look forward to seeing you on the uh, southern, eastern and northern uh, regional outlooks, which are all rolling out over the next three weeks. Thank you, panelists. Thank you, Bola. Speak to you soon. Hello.